0: Good morning to you. Uh, happy Halloween to you Protestants. a uh, Happy Reformation Day. and uh, condolences to all Cardinals fans everywhere. And congratulations to you Red Sox fans. It's a long time to wait for a celebration in your own stadium. Well, I hope you're in the mood for a lot of rain. You're going to get it today. So be happy with the rain. Thank God for water. We need it. Uh, thank God for water as it's flowing through your living room this morning. with All the rain we're going to get. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. And we are going to take two Thursdays to look at this great chapter. We're going to look at the first 24 verses today, which have a lot to do with Marriage and sex in marriage, and you say, Wilson, which is it? Is it you or the Apostle Paul that's obsessed with sex? Uh, <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes you kind of wonder because there's a lot of this in the Bible, uh, and why is it why is it there in such uh, to such degree? And the reason is uh, number one, it's important. We saw last time that your sexuality and your theology go hand in glove. Uh, that your sex life is one of the key expressions of what you think about God and, uh, and His relationship to us. And secondly, <clears throat> we mess it up a lot. And thirdly, we have lots of questions and confusion about it, and that's the case here. You'll notice the very first words of the text we're going to read, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And largely, this next section of 1 Corinthians consists of Paul's answers to questions they were asking him in a letter sent to him. So this is Paul's answer to their confusion about what does it mean to follow Christ in our marriages and as a single person and sexually. Uh, and so we'll we'll see here what their questions were and how Paul answers it. And it's extremely important in our own day because we have so much uh, dysfunction in our sexual life. Um, I mentioned to our congregation on Sunday morning. I mean, this really has been sex week at 2nd. Uh, we, we were in a text on Ephesians on sexual immorality. You can believe that? It uh, just hit the same week. But I mentioned to them uh, in the studies that have been done in uh, premarital sexuality in America very recently, there's a book just published by Oxford University Press last year. Uh, it, uh, the studies showed that of those who actually have a dating, steady dating relationship between the ages of 18 and 23, of them are sexually active in the States. And uh, if you compare that to the figure uh, that 78% of our population professes to be Christian, you you can see we've got a problem uh, with sexual immorality in the church. So there is at least as much confusion in the church today as there was in Corinth. And so we we better dig in and uh, ask the Lord to help us get this part of our lives straight. And whenever we talk about uh, sex, it's always important that we start with the gospel. And remember that all of our sins are forgiven. Uh, if, if, if that weren't true, we couldn't talk about this matter because there's so much guilt, so much shame associated with our marital practices, our sexual practices, uh, not just our uh, conduct, but our, our thoughts and our words. Uh, uh, we, 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 couldn't, we couldn't survive. So remember, Christ has forgiven all of our sins. The point now is, having been forgiven, what do we do in the future? How do we think? How do we speak? How do we act? And that's that's what we want want to get clear on. Uh, As our hearts are grateful to God for all that he's done for us in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, how can we now live for him? Let's look at these first 24 verses together. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now notice that's in quotation marks. So the Apostle Paul, most scholars believe, including the ESV translators here, that Paul is quoting them. And then he's giving an answer. So they're saying to him, well, it must be good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I know some men for whom 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, is their life verse. Do not deprive one another. Yeah. Verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command... I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. Okay, the apostle is answering questions, and first he's going to address the issue of sexual relations in marriage. And the point he makes here is that we are all to love our spouses sexually. Love your spouse sexually. There are two mistakes. I mentioned this on Sunday morning. There are two mistakes that the church often makes about sexual relations. One is that sex is evil. And going back as far as probably the greatest theologian of the Christian West, of St. Augustine, in the 4th and 5th centuries, Augustine uh, hinted at this, this way of thinking about sexuality. And uh, the other mistake, on the other hand, is that we think of sex as an entitlement. And both of those are incorrect. Uh, sex is a ministry, actually, a way of glorifying God and serving our neighbor. We need to learn how to take the gifts that God has given us, and certainly sex is there for our enjoyment. We'll get to that in a moment. But it's ultimately there for us to glorify God. So it's not an evil in of itself. We were made sexual beings, and therefore sex is a good thing. And all you have to do is read Genesis 2, read Song of Solomon. You get very explicit ideas about sexual imaginations and romantic entanglements and uh, the physical attraction of male and female, and you'll see that sex is very... Uh, right and good and holy, but we've perverted it like we have everything else. So every good gift that God has given us, we tend to pervert it. And that's what's being discussed here. When you come to Christ, everything gets redeemed. Everything gets converted, everything about you, including your sex life. So if you've been living one way as a non-Christian or as all of us, whether we're Christians or not, we have temptations and lusts that are uh, falling after the old ways, you have to submit those to Christ. You have to think everything through and convert it. It's just like your financial life. It's like your honesty. You know, if you're, if you're not a believer, your tendency is to shade the truth or to distort truth in order to get what you want out of people, to manipulate them. When you come to Christ, you realize, no, I've got to convert my whole way of thinking about the purpose of communications. It's to serve somebody else. To be concerned about his interest and not just my own. And it's important that I always tell the truth. So your tongue gets converted. Well, likewise with your sex life and your marriage life. Everything gets converted. And you'll notice we begin here in verses 1 through 3 with simply the idea of being faithful. Let us be faithful. He says, you're you're asking me or you're saying to me it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That is, you're saying there's so much trouble with sex that temple prostitution is so rampant uh, in Corinth. And our behavior was so bad, let's just all abstain from sex altogether, even in our marriages. And in your marriages, you know that sex can, can be a source of great sorrow and grief and conflict. And let's just, just cut the whole thing off. That was what they were saying. Let's just turn the fire hose off. And he says, no, you must be faithful in your sexual life, not abstinent necessarily. If you're single, yes. But if you're married, no. There's actually an obligation to be engaged sexually. And some of us need to hear that. Most men have a stronger sexual desire than their wives. But some of us are married to wives who have a stronger sexual appetite than we do. And our, our concern is to be sure to get on their wavelength instead of our own. Either way. But the idea here is to be faithful. And he says, no, uh, it is not good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman because of the temptation to sexual immorality, the temptation to prostitution, the temptation to have your sexual needs met elsewhere. He's saying, no, when you, uh, the, one of the purposes of marriage is so that you will uh, engage sexually and you will be relieved of some of the temptations that come to us uh, otherwise. And he says that's the reason that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Remember, we discussed this last time, the practice in Corinth was, yeah, you have a wife to give you heirs, but you have concubines and temple prostitutes to satisfy your physical intimacy and all your sexual lusts. And Paul's saying, no, put all of that on the wife. That's the reason you have wives. Not only to give you heirs, but to be a comfort to you, to be your best friend, to be your intimate friend, and to be your sexual partner. And he's saying that's exactly the way it should be All you have to do is look at Genesis, and and you you get this. The husband, he says, look at this in verse 3, should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. You'll see an interesting text there in Exodus 21. Uh, I won't go through all of it, but uh, it makes it clear that the man is to give to his wife her conjugal rights. Uh, now, look, this is a men's Bible study, okay? If it a women's Bible study, I'd have some very different things to say. I'm talking to men. If anybody's listening to this on tape, this is a men's Bible study. So, <laughs> and one of the important things, when you're a man or a woman and you're reading texts like this, read your own mail. Uh, you don't need to be reading your spouse's mail. And so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the female's mail that's in here. We're going to look at our mail. And uh, the deal is this. So often... Um, You'll have a marriage, uh, maybe the man's appetite is greater than the woman's. And for him to have his conjugal rights satisfied, you know, it's going to be at least every other day, right? And for her, she's thinking, man, once a week is a burden, you know? And sometimes it's just so simple. I've I've had couples come to me and they'll be in conflict for months and months, be very upset uh, because of this difference. And uh, I can remember a case where the, the woman actually had the stronger appetite. And, you know, it, it's this simple. Let's just talk about it. And the man had never been asked this question. I just asked him, what do you think would be right for y'all's marriage? What would feel good to you? And he gave me a number. And I said to her, what do you think would just feel right for you? First time she'd ever been asked that, she gave me a number. And I said, how about if we average it? <laughs> okay and they walk away happy sexually ever after. Um, It's amazing to me. Some things are fairly easily solved uh, if you just get out of your own skin for a minute and what it is you're trying to have satisfied and just begin to ask questions. Men get all sometimes embarrassed, don't want to talk about it, and they feel like <laughs> if they're not successful sexually that something's wrong with their manhood. I mean, you guys, we're, we're like four-year-olds sometimes in our emotional maturity. You know, all, it, what you really need to do at some point is say, Honey, what, what do you really need, you know, sexually? What, what's really right for you? And get on her agenda. Some of you say, Boy, that's going to end all sexual relations in my marriage. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, look what he's saying here. You're to be interested in the conjugal rights of your wife. That's being faithful. So being faithful is focusing everything on her. When you're involved in pornography, gentlemen, you're not focused on her. You're being unfaithful. Just just, pure and simple. Uh, I've, I've talked with several uh, men over the years and wives, as you can imagine, on the issue of pornography. And the man is always surprised at how she feels when she finds out. He says, I wasn't doing anything with anybody. I was just looking at pictures. And the way she feels is that you had an affair with another person. The emotional experience for her is the same. Maybe we we can talk about that in just a few minutes. And the guy has no idea. Well, the reason you have no idea, you're not thinking about her conjugal desires. You're not thinking about her female sexuality. It's very different from yours. And if you are having your sexual needs satisfied outside of your marriage, she feels betrayed. And there's a sense in which she is, and that's one of the dangers of pornography. Another danger of pornography, not only are you funding something that's absolutely wicked, a, a multi-billion-dollar industry that you're feeding into and supporting, but you're learning some very uh, incorrect things about female sexuality. The women who, who show up in pornography are usually either drugged or they're emotionally uh uh, out of sorts, they usually, uh, 90% of the time, they've been abused in their own families, usually through incest. And so their, their whole sexuality is, is just a mess. Those are the women that end up in pornography. A woman who generally is looking for a healthy relationship does not look at sex the way the females portray their appetite for sex on pornography. So you're feeding your mind with stuff about women that's not correct. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. You're going to teach us what is correct. Oh, yes, of course. Then look at verses 4 and 5. And here you'll see the answer. We're not only to be faithful to our wives, to be devoted to them, but we're to be servants. (laughs) Let me put it this way. You are a sex slave to your wife. Look at this language. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now put a stop there. In first century... Greco-Roman ethics, that was common knowledge. Everything belonged to the husband. The wife's body, the children, the cattle, the house, everything belonged to the husband. He had rights and authority over everything. Read the next sentence. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, you underline that because let me tell you something about that text. In first century Greco-Roman ethics and everything before Nothing like that had ever been said in human history. Paul was pro-female. He was radically pro-female. That kind of language was unheard of. So when you when you look at the uh, power of Christianity in the 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, uh, one of the great powers of Christianity in the early church was they were radically transforming the role of women in society. So don't let anyone suggest to you that Paul was a misogynist, a a woman hater, or just a traditionalist. No, Paul overthrew those customs that had oppressed women and made them second-class citizens. Here's what Paul is saying in first-century culture where women did not have these rights. He's saying, husbands, let me tell you something. You have no authority. You, You do not have sole authority over your body. Your wife does. Your body belongs to her, just like her body belongs to you. That is a very, very important statement telling us that we are to be the servants to our wives. The purpose of our sexuality, remember, is number one, to glorify God, to to live in His presence, to honor Him with our sexuality because our sexuality expresses our worship. The second thing that we're doing with our sexuality is serving our neighbor. That's the reason that if... We do not have uh, conjugal uh, liberties with someone. We don't steal them from them. We're serving our neighbor. We're building them up. We don't grope our neighbor. We serve our neighbor. And that's the reason for propriety and boundaries and modesty and customs and habits that let people know we're safe and they're safe in our presence uh, if they're not our wives. Uh, On the other hand, when we're married then we serve our wives the same way with respect and dignity, but we also serve them with intimacy, including sexual intimacy. And we do it in a way that will build them up. Now, for that reason, let's talk a little bit about female sexuality. Uh, The first thing I want you to notice is TWRM. The whole relationship matters. The whole relationship matters. Definitely, for me to say something like that, one would know this is a men's Bible study because that is a no-brainer for women. They'll say, huh? Duh. Of course the whole relationship matters. Well, what women don't understand about male sexuality is we have these nice little compartments. You can be mad as a hornet at your wife about the fact that she went out and bought something that you didn't have money for. But when you get home, you'd love to have sex with her. (laughs) It's no problem for you. She's just as attractive as she always was, and you'll have just as much fun in bed as if you didn't have an argument. For your wife, that is not the case. Have you noticed? You're you're making a little overture to her in the kitchen. and She seems a little chilly. And you're thinking, what was that about? Oh, yeah, I didn't take the trash out this morning. You know, taking the trash out, gentlemen, is a sexual act. (laughs) And... If you, have, if you have an unresolved conflict, your wife is not interested in sexual relations with you, even though you're her best friend and her husband. The reason is she has an unresolved conflict with you, and you've not been gentle and kind to her, and the relationship is not right. The only way a healthy woman with typical female mentality can enjoy sexual relations is if she feels loved in every aspect of your life. And if you're married, you can't fake it. She sees through that crud. So there's got to be a genuine affection for her that's expressed in tenderness and consideration. And you pick this up in Ephesians 5. It's the same in the first century as it is in the 21st century. Women haven't changed in their fundamental created makeup. They want to be loved in every aspect of their being. And when they feel cared for by you and they feel valued by you, then they would love to be intimate with their husbands. I've asked wife after wife this question and gotten the same answer. Here's the question. Sister, if you're in the kitchen and your husband comes home from work and he has a sexual interest in you and starts to put the move on, but you have an unresolved conflict from the morning uh, and you're really not that interested, but he keeps pursuing you even though you're not that interested. And then you end up going to bed and having sexual relations. How do you feel? I get the same word every time. Used. It's the word I get every time. Some will be so crass as to say, "Feel like a piece of meat." So they what the way they feel about your sexual life, if the whole life is not going well, is that you're just using them as a sex object, not as your closest friend, not as someone you value and cherish. In female sexuality that lowers the uh, enjoyment of the sexual relationship below zero. They would rather not have sex than to have sex like that. Men are not built that way. We compartmentalize. We'd love to resolve conflicts, but shoot, that's not going to mess up my sex life. (laughs) I mean, I've had men say to their wives, Honey, okay, so we got some problems here, we got some problems there, and I know I made some mistakes over here, but good grief, why can't we just have a good sex life? That seems to be going well. I'm going... This guy is something close to an idiot. Actually, he's close to typical is what it is. That's the way we think. And then I'll usher him out of the room and I explain... Well, I don't usher him out of the room, but I'll, I'll ignore him for a minute. I have to explain to the wife male sexuality. They, they, they don't get it. Uh, there are other things about male sexuality that are deeply tied to our sense of self-esteem that the, the wife also does not understand. But this is not a women's Bible study. <clears throat> so the first thing is... The whole relationship matters. You have to be very careful not to be seeking to manipulate your wife or to charm your wife just so that you can get sexual privileges from her. But what you do need to know is your consideration of her, your tenderness with her, your whole relationship, your language, your verbal respect, not just lack of verbal abuse, but verbal expressions of love are extremely important, which leads us to the next one, I-T-E-S it's the ear, stupid. With men, it's the eye. What arouses men typically in sexual relationships is what we see and what we grab. (laughs) So we like to touch things and we like to see them. And that is the sensual conduit for male sexual arousal. For the woman, it ain't so. So if you're married to a woman, which I suggest you do if you're going to get married, if you're married to a woman, you have to realize her sexuality is quite different from your own. She's aroused in different ways. It's the ear stupid. When I talk with men and women premaritally about sex, we go through some of these differences. And uh, (laughs) there's a guy who was sitting on the couch one time. We were talking about this, and he says, You mean you have to talk? (laughs) That just kind of says it all. Now, of course, if it's a women's Bible study, we'll talk about some of the implications of the man being aroused by what he sees. That scares the bejabbers out of most women, that the man is aroused by what he sees, you know, and they feel really awkward. The man feels similarly challenged that the woman is aroused by what she hears because you don't know what to say well could i suggest that you just get in front of the mirror and practice (laughs) i mean think up some things surely you can think of something that is saying to her how much you love her how much you value her how you know why you have affection for her and how much you appreciate her there are all kinds of things that you can say but just remember That female sexuality, if you're serving a female, you must get onto her turf. Most of what men learn about female sexuality is just enough to make jokes about them. And I believe in humor, especially with respect to sex. The whole thing is humorous as far as I'm concerned. But, I mean, I just can't. The way that God made us is really humorous. I won't get into that. Anyway, uh, but that's as far as most of us get. Where you've got to get is to embrace female sexuality because god made us male and female he reveals himself in two genders and he reveals something about himself in the way those genders relate so there is something about your theology that's being shaped when you embrace female sexuality now your task is not to bring her over to the male side and do the pornographic thing in your bedroom That's what most men do. You look at pornography, you think of that as hot sex, and you want to get your wife to participate. No, the Christian man is going just the other way. He's going over here on the female side. And so as far as he's concerned, his task is to have sexual relations in a way that fulfills the woman's needs and her dreams. And I guarantee you it's very different than pornography, and it's very different than the way you've been thinking about it. Because think of this. Before you got married... The only sex you can imagine was selfish. Think about that. It's kind of depressing. But since you're not married, if you're imagining sex, which men do all the time, the only sex you can imagine is selfish. You're imagining it, not for the other person's benefit. You're imagining it because you want to enjoy it mentally. And so you've trained yourself, you know, for 25 years before you get married, you train yourself to think selfishly. Now, when you get married, you're supposed to think selflessly, which means we're done on the female side. It's all about the relationship. It's all about the ears and what you say, and that you're romancing her verbally. Thirdly, GTNG. See if I can remember all these. Um, gentle touching, not groping. <laughs> gentle touching, not grabbing or groping. A woman is aroused also through touch, but not the kind of touch you're thinking of. Hey, hit me again. Uh, What's the hell about It's pornography. It's male perversions of sexual relations. A woman doesn't want to be dealt with that way. Not a woman you want to be married to, generally speaking. If they do, there's probably some form of brokenness in their background. What you're trying to do is heal and redeem and make somebody whole, and so the way the woman was meant to be dealt with, she is the the weaker vessel. She is meant to be gentle, and so you're gentle with her. So you lay aside these crazy, distorted male perversions of sexuality, and you come over here on the female side, and you're gentle and and kind with her, not grabbing her. Uh, now, uh, of course, there's playfulness uh, in marital sexuality, and I don't mean in any way to suggest that that's, that's not there. Uh, I think you know what I'm talking about. SD, slow down, all right? Uh, let's just take a major problem you've got in making love to a woman. Uh, let's just have a little chart here. This is it's called sexual arousal, and that's time, okay? We know what the male chart looks like. Ching, ching, all right, all right. Pretty simple. Men are simple. Men are simple, you know. We just got one button on, off. That's about it. Ching, ching, that's it. Now let's chart the, the female sexual response. You know, it goes like this, and then it goes like that. Well, can she get on your chart? No. Even if she should, she can't. Physiologically, she can't go boom, boom like that. It doesn't work. Can you do this? Yeah, you can. With some practice. With some selfless sacrifice. With some thought about her. You can slow down and get on this kind of a chart and hang in there. After you've gone, just hang in there. She's still floating. And you're thinking about her. you got your mind on her. So we're, remember, we're free to practice sexual activity in marriage. It's good. But Paul says in Galatians, we have been free from the burden of sin so that we can serve other people. And in marital sexuality, you are serving someone else. Now, this is the reason that uh, extramarital or premarital sexuality never works sexually. Never works. Because you are in it for yourself, by definition. You are not building the other person up. You're taking them down. By definition, you are using them. So you can't possibly love them outside of marriage. So any attempt to express love... Sexually, outside of marriage, by definition, doesn't work. But in marriage, it must work. And you must give yourself to the needs and desires of the other person who happens to be a female. And she's very different. Lastly, AFA. Ask for advice for having sex. Humble yourself. And just say, honey, tell me, what really meets your needs? What feels good to you? What's exciting for you? What do you like to do? And then, gentlemen, listen to her. She's not kidding you. Uh, she's not uh, just giving some possibility. She's telling you the way it is. So whatever she, however she answers those questions, take those as marching orders. That's what it means for you to be a servant to your wife sexually. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, no, far from not touching a woman, no, touch her a lot. Get on her agenda. Realize your body is owned by somebody else. If you've given yourself to Christ in honor of him, you give your body to her. Now, some of you have wives that are really not all that interested in sexuality. You can go to them, and you can say, Honey, we have really different uh, desire, levels of sexual desire. Why don't, why don't we just talk about it? Let's, let's come to something that would be comfortable for both of us. And just do what I did with the young couple when they were on the couch. Just average it out or go a little bit her way and say, could we do it this way? Sometimes your wives will have physical problems that keep them from being able to be sexually active. Use use your imagination. There are ways sometimes to get around those things. Bottom line, if they're not, then you can be celibate in your marriage, and you must be content with that, and you must continue to serve her romantically. This is very, very, very hard. Some of you have gotten to that stage, maybe it's in your 50s somewhere. I can't live somewhere back there in my past when she goes through the change. And that presents some problems, doesn't it? Well, just get yourself ready. Remember, sex is not evil, but sex is not an entitlement either. And if for a season of life you're sexually active and another season of life you're not, who said you're entitled? Here's what you're entitled to Heaven, ultimate glories. Intimacy with Christ, a future that cannot be imagined, how wonderful it is. And so you're entitled now to serve and to die and lay down your life for Christ. Some of us would be willing to die for Christ, but we're not willing to be happy with no sex. And I just say, come on now. If we're supposed to be dying for Christ, laying our lives down, we can go through this life without sexual activity. And there are plenty of single men in this room who are keeping themselves chaste and holy and celibate in their single state? Certainly, you married men can do that too if you have to. So let's let's get let's get it going, and let's be happy about it instead of groping, uh, uh, griping, and complaining and moping around because we don't have our sexual needs met. Really, we're acting like ten-year-olds. Let's grow up. And if that part of your life has been either temporarily or permanently cut off, let it be cut off, and let's let's move on. We got work to do. And one day, our pleasures are going to be far beyond any orgasm you've ever had or I've ever had. So let's, let's grow up. So our, remember, our sexual lives, certainly, there's nothing wrong with having pleasure as long as it's pleasure derived while serving our neighbor. So you keep your focus on your neighbor, and inevitably, there's going to be much pleasure in that. But it's pleasure that's derived when serving and seeking to bring pleasure to our neighbor. That's what Paul is saying. So be faithful to your wife. Focus on her. If your sexual needs are to be met uh, in a person, uh, either visually or physically, it should be your wife. Uh, And then if it is your wife, you must go to her as her servant. Paul makes this clear in a number of places, and I've given you some references there. So does Peter. Thirdly, he says, be active. Like I say, this is the male life verse. Do not deprive one another except for prayer that you mutually agree upon. And the reason is so that you won't be tempted. Uh, It's true in our country that the frequency of sexual relations in marriage is higher among evangelical Christians than it is with the general population. Well, of course, it should be. Uh, Evangelical Christians are the ones, uh, those who really believe the Bible is the Word of God, those who believe they've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have uh, received the power of the Spirit in their lives. Uh, of course, they should be more sexually active. We expect that, uh, and if that's not the case, if you find there's some obstruction there in your sexual relationship, come sit on a pastor's couch somewhere, get to a counselor, talk it through, get start communicating. One of the big problems in sexual conflicts is that the husband and wife don't communicate, and a third party who's trained. Can begin to ask some questions that you're too embarrassed to ask each other, or for some reason you don't ask each other, and begin to get that connection going again. So don't live in misery without communicating about something that's bothering you. Most men won't admit it. They just they just pout and they're angry and they avoid their wives and they hold them in contempt instead of actually talking about it. So be active one way or another. Then in verses six through nine, he, he says, be free. He says, Now As a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's talking about being single. Some scholars suggest that Paul had been married and probably widowed. We don't know that to be a fact. But we do know in first century Judaism, it was considered almost an obligation to be married. So some suspect, since Paul had been a faithful student of Gamaliel, that he would have been married sometime in his past. We don't know, though. But he was certainly single now, either single or widowed. And he says, "Um, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now he's going to speak to the unmarried in verse 8. And by the way, in your handouts, I think we've printed the wrong verse there under be free, the wrong set of verses. Uh, It should be 6 through 9. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. He's saying, here's, here's what most scholars think is going on. The New Testament scholars generally think that Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church who believes that if you're married, you shouldn't practice sex in your marriage because it's evil. And that if you're not married, you should just remain single. He, most scholars believe that Paul is speaking to a church that has actually overreacted to the sexually evil culture in which they live and the way in which they've overreacted is to label sex as evil and to, re, to label marriage as undesirable. Now, what most scholars think Paul is doing to answer that is to come in the back door, if you will, and say... Look, single is a good thing. In other words, he's lending some credibility to those who are uh, saying that marriage is not a desirable state. He's saying, look, single is a good thing. I'm single. I could wish that everybody was like I am. But let's make a concession here. So it looks as though Paul is being very political uh, in a good way to keep the church together and say, look, there's something about what you think that is correct. But over here, there's something that's correct as well. So he's gently correcting them. So, in other words, most scholars suggest Paul here is actually making an argument for marriage through granting that singleness is a good thing. Now, I would go another step and say Paul is actually making a wonderful case for singleness. And in our culture, we vastly underestimate the value of being single. In our generation, and especially in the church, we've almost idolized marriage and made a man or a woman, especially, to feel as though they didn't have a complete life unless they were married. You will not find that in the Scriptures. You will find the single life held up as an honorable life. Uh, Most of us here would know the name of John R. W. Stott, a man who ministered around the world as one of the finest expositors of the Scriptures in the 20th century. And Dr. Stott was single all of his life. And he just devoted himself to the the ministry of other people. And he wasn't tied down by the obligations of marriage. Now, as a man with five children and seven grandchildren, I have to say I love having family. And and as a person who would burn with passion if I weren't married, (laughs) you know, as a younger man, I'm glad I was married. I'm one of those weak people that he's making a concession about here. So I'm grateful for marriage, for the sexual life, and I'm grateful for family. But I think it's very important for us in the church to be validating constantly the single life. And that means the ways in which we do things socially. So often, you know, uh, if someone comes to a party, if they're not accompanied by someone of the opposite gender, they're not properly there at your party. Is that really the way we should be treating our single friends? Shouldn't we be bringing several singles over to our Thanksgiving uh, dinners or Christmas dinners? Shouldn't we be thinking about those who don't have family and during times when families are really enjoying festive occasions that we're including very intentionally the single people? Those of you at second in all of your Sunday school classes, do you have a special care for the single people that are in your congregational community so that you're including them in festive occasions where oftentimes they're overlooked thoughtlessly? Paul is saying the single life is a good life. Because you're not, we'll see this later on in in the same chapter, you're not bound by some of the same family obligations that take so much of your time and you're free to minister. So rather than complaining and moping about and pouting because we're single, we aggressively take our singleness and give it away. Uh, I mentioned in uh, the early service last Sunday that uh, a, a man named Ronald Rollhauser, who's a monk, was writing on sexuality. It's a book called The Holy Longing. And he was speculating as to why Jesus were, were single. And I thought he had two great speculations. One I'd thought of, one I hadn't. The first one is that Jesus in his singleness identifies with all of single people who experience the loneliness of being single. That's just so typical of Jesus. He takes all of our burdens. He experiences all of our isolation and our pain and our agonies. He takes it all onto himself. And in his single life, he was identifying completely with every single person on the face of the earth. The other one I hadn't thought of, uh, Rollheiser speculated that Jesus was single, he said, because rather than giving himself to one person in marriage, he now is able to give himself to the world. What a lovely thought. And that sounds just like our Lord Jesus Christ. Very intentionally, rather than satisfying his own needs or satisfying the needs of one person, he seeks to satisfy the needs of the world. This is the way single people need to enter life. Go into life to satisfy the legitimate needs of your neighbor around you and take the extra time and energy and financial freedom that you have to give it away to the world because you don't have the obligation of heirs. So you can just give yourself. So there needs to be a very aggressive sexuality for single men. And now, unfortunately, when someone's single, we have these silly speculations about whether someone was gay or not. Scholars suggested Paul was gay. Well, that's because they have no idea of biblical sexuality and how a man could be fully happy in his single life. And by the way, what difference does it make whether Paul had homosexual tendencies or heterosexual tendencies? It doesn't matter. He was living a celibate life. And he was serving his neighbor, and he was honoring Christ. It makes no difference. That's the reason it's so silly for men or women to think they're supposed to come out of the closet. Come out for what? Looking for someone else to play around with? Identifying yourself so everybody knows how to try to seduce you? Why don't you just be yourself, keep to yourself? There's no need to come out of the closet. Just live a single celibate life. And uh, that's what the apostle is commending here. We're free. Now, let's move on. Notice in verses 10 through 11, he is saying... For those of you who are married, do not separate from or divorce your believing spouse. If you are married to a believer, you do not separate from her, nor do you divorce her. And here's the charge we are to heed. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, he's quoting Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband. And then in verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. You see this throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the teachings of Jesus. I've cited them there in the three synoptic synoptic Gospels as well as in Malachi. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, you have this statement that there are only two grounds for divorce. One is adultery on the part of your spouse or such willful desertion, line three there, as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. And notice the last line of that paragraph, that persons concerned in it should not be left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. So you don't decide whether you've been deserted. You submit to the government and discipline of your church and let them decide because they're non-conflicted parties. So your wife may walk out the door and not come back. But that doesn't mean that you've been irremediably deserted. No, you get others to intervene on your wife, intervene on you, get the two of you together, and let them make a judgment that you've been finally willfully Irremediably deserted. Then you're no longer bound in the marriage if someone has done that to you, either adultery or willful desertion. So otherwise, gentlemen, there are no biblical warrants for divorce. You say, yeah, but you don't know how unhappy I was. No, I don't. But the Bible says it doesn't matter because the purpose of your marriage is to honor God and to serve your neighbor, not to be happy. Secondarily, it's a wonderful thing to be happy in a marriage, and I can attest to that myself. And I'm very grateful for my marriage, and I get a lot of happiness out of my marriage, but that's not the ultimate purpose of it. The purpose of a sacred marriage is to honor the Lord and to serve that woman that I married. You say, well, I was young when I got married. I didn't know any better. We weren't very well matched. I understand that. My wife was 20, and I was 21 when we got married. What did we know? Very little. Very little. When you're young, you tend to marry opposites. As you get older, you tend to marry someone more like yourself. So I was young. That's enough said, right? So all kinds of conflicts, all kinds of seasons of unhappiness because of these vast differences in outlook in life. What difference does that make? Here's what difference it makes. I looked to the Lord, see how he loved me. I said, Lord, what would you like for me to do? You've loved me so much. What can I do? He says, go home and love that woman. Yes, sir. And go home and love my, mom, my wife. It's that simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Christ has loved you and given himself for you. His marriage with you was no hot thing either. Let me tell you something. (laughs) And it, it didn't bring him a whole lot of pleasure in terms of physical pleasure to meet your needs. It cost him his whole life. It was agonizing. Yet it was pleasurable for him because he loves you. And he was delighted to see you benefit from his death. So now you go home and lay your life down. You're imitating Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of that marriage. Now, it doesn't mean you don't haul your wife into the counselor's office or the, or the pastor's office and get all the help you can get. But as far as you're concerned, you're devoted to that woman and devoted to the Lord. So help you God, all the way to the end. And if you believe in eternal life and the pleasures of eternal life, you can wait. You don't have to grab for all the gusto here. Notice that there is a backup plan. <laughs> it's amazing. God knows how we're built. He says, to the married: I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Somehow the, the Lord knows he's giving commandments to people like us. If you do, you should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So you should not separate from your spouse. If you do, generally you can separate physically. Sometimes that's not a bad thing if it's under counsel and there's a strategy for re-engagement. But if you do separate, uh, you, you must have the intent to get back. If you divorce unbiblically unethically, then you should remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. Now, if you divorce unbiblically and your wife goes off with another man, now that lingering obligation is eliminated and now you're free to remarry. I think that's generally the way to look at the text. And you'll see some uh, excerpts there from Second Presbyterian's paper on marriage, divorce, and remarriage that hopefully will be helpful. Now, lastly, we've got four minutes. Do not initiate or forbid divorce with your unbelieving spouse. So if you've married an unbeliever, and Paul is talking to Corinthians who just got converted. So they were already married. They got converted. Their spouse didn't get converted. So now they're married to an unbelieving spouse. That's the context. But we can apply it to ourselves. You don't separate from your unbelieving spouse if your spouse wants to stay with you because you might sanctify your family. He says... There's a sense in which your family is set apart just because you're a believer. It's a wonderful privilege. Uh, if your wife's not a believer but you are in the Presbyterian church, you can baptize your children. They're still set apart because you're a believing parent even though your wife's not. So, and this is the text from which that comes. That's the reason we baptize our infants because they're set apart because you're a believer even if your wife's not. So don't separate from her because you might, you might be the, God's means to convert her through a holy life. But on the other hand, you might not sanctify your family, verses 15 and 16. So if your unbelieving partner separates, don't grasp, don't complain, don't get into bitter fights, let her go. If she's an unbeliever and wants to separate, he says, you're called to peace. And then lastly, you see that the big deal here is you must sanctify yourself. So you might sanctify your family. You might not sanctify your family through your faith. But for sure, you can sanctify yourself, which is what? Contentment. Finding your contentment in the circumstances God has given you. Are you single? Find your contentment as a single man. Are you married to a woman who's not perfect? Find your contentment being married to an imperfect human being. Are your sex needs not met? Find your contentment in Jesus Christ. Is he enough or is he not? So the big argument here in verses 17 through 24 that would take a whole hour for us to to give it justice is that you are bound to obey God cheerfully in the place He assigns. And by His providence, He assigns you your place. You say, well, it's not God's providence. It's a dumb mistake I made. I married the wrong woman. Okay, you were dumb. You married the wrong woman. But in His providence, He allowed you to be dumb and married the wrong woman. Therefore, in His providence, He has assigned you to be married to the results of your dumb mistake. I'm just being really blunt. So it's both and. Yeah, okay, so you weren't wise. But now in His providence, that's your assigned task. To love that woman to whom you're legitimately married. And to love her even when she's not loving you well. And to find contentment in it. Not just to do it with a stiff upper lip, but actually to be abounding with joy while you're loving someone that you don't believe is fully loving you. That's the Christian calling. And it's because we're in Christ. We have found our sufficiency in Christ. I cite here Philippians chapter 4 on the last page there, of verses 10 through 20. Look at Paul. He's in prison when he's writing Philippians. And he says he's learned the secret of contentment. He learned it. It didn't come naturally. He learned it. He worked on it. And he found contentment in Christ. All things are possible through him who has given me strength. So it's in our suffering that we especially find the deep contentment that only comes from Christ. So whether we're single or married, whether we're well married or not well married, we find our contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this lesson from the Apostle Paul. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Corinth who struggle with things similar to things we struggle with and who got answers from your revealed word. Please help us to put these into practice today, to love the people to whom you have assigned us in marriage or in singleness, uh, and help us to give ourselves back to, to you as a living sacrifice. For those of us who are married, help us to give ourselves and our bodies to the welfare of our wives. For those of us who are single, help us to give ourselves to everybody, but with boundaries and propriety and modesty that's appropriate for a Christian man, so that we glorify you and serve our neighbor as ourselves. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.